Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand what it means to treasure you above all things. Help us to see you today for what you really are is someone who is far more glorious and worth the loss of anything as long as we have you. Oh Lord, pull us out of the normal American mindset that life exists in the pursuit of happiness. And remind us that there is no joy apart from you, Jesus. Thank you that these days of economic uncertainty and rising unemployment are reminding us that our treasure is not here. And we pray for great faith and great boldness and great courage during difficult moments to declare by our lives and by our lips that we treasure Jesus more than an easy life. So, Lord, for those who are in the crucible of hardship, remind them that that's what they believe and increase their affection for it. And for those who today are about to enter into that world of hurt, prepare them, Lord, so they will stand strong. And for others who are here just trying to figure out what does life mean and what does the Bible say, that, Lord, today you might open their eyes and help them to see that you are on their path, drawing them to your heart. Lord, would today be the day that they bend the knee and say, Yes, Christ, you are my Lord. So, Lord, help us to get this right. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The aim for this series has been to wrestle with the subject of suffering through the life of Job such that we would be helped to see that there is far more joy and happiness in the who question than there is the um, what or why question. It is this to be able to wrestle with suffering such that we would be able to say, now, when I come into difficulties and I come into hardships, I want to ask why. I want to ask what's the point, what's the meaning of this, but instead, Job and the Bible calls us to say, don't ask that question. Instead, anchor your heart on who is in control. For me, this is nothing more than a worship question. Uh, a, a question of what do we really love? Or let me put it this way. Here's the question. Is God so lovely and worthy? Is He so attractive, so beautiful, that He can be worshipped regardless of what He gives and what He takes away? That's the question. Because that is essentially what the enemy says to God. The enemy says to God in Job chapter 1, remember that conversation between God and Job, about uh, God and, and Satan, rather, about Job. And he says, if you consider my servant Job, and Satan believes that Job serves God simply because of the good things that he gives, and his theory is, you take away his stuff, he'll curse you. In other words, you're not so worthy that if you take away the gifts, they'll still worship you and love you. So, 
the issues in Job are, are not just about the reality of uh, what it means for somebody to endure in suffering. It is how valuable is your God. That's the issue. It is whether or not He is worth everything when you also lose everything. And the answer from the Bible and from the book of Job is yes. He is so lovely and worthy, so beautiful, that we would rather have Him than an easy life. So when hardship or difficulty comes, you say, even though He slay me, yet I will bless Him. That's the message of Job. It is that you would choose to say, I choose to bless, even when hardship and difficulties come your way. Now, hardship and suffering is not easy. There's emotional difficulties that go along with it. I'm not suggesting that this is something you just wake up one day and say, okay, this is a piece of cake to do. This is hard. But it's even more difficult when you've got packages of God. And that's the problem with Job's three friends, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. It is that they had created little packages of God, little ideas of what God was like, little ideas of um, what He was going to, to do. And His package, essentially, was God does things that are good to those who do what's right, and He does things that are bad to those who are bad. That's his, their equation. So their package was, if anything good comes to you, it's because God is proud of you and likes you and you're doing well. And if anything bad happens to you, it's because He's angry with you because you've sinned. That's their package. Well, the problem was is that um, that didn't fit with Job's scenario. And you as the reader know this because you know the beginning opening story of the book of Job, that Job had done nothing wrong. And in the minds of Job's friends, Job had to have done something evil to warrant all of this suffering. And because God didn't immediately restore it, it was further evidence that he had done something wrong. But Job knows that he is righteous. And from chapters 3 to 31... Three cycles of speeches. We hear these friends unpack their ideas about what God is like, and Job re- rejects them and says, no, I'm a righteous man. And the problem is, is that after 31 chapters of this, Job has become increasingly hostile and pessimistic about God. So understand that after 31 chapters, there's a pause, and we're at a stalemate. Job's friends believe that he has sinned and therefore God has judged him. And Job, on the other hand, believes he's righteous. And his conclusion is, it's not that I've sinned, it's that God is capricious. It's that God is arbitrary. He's random. I don't know why he did this. God just did it. There's no connection. And Job becomes, honestly, a bit cynical. A bit um, angry. His, His heart seems to harden. And in the midst of all of these conversations, Job is increasingly frustrated. His friends are increasingly annoying. (laughs) And it ends with Job saying this in chapter 31 and verse 35. Is what he says. Hear the pain of this. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. And then it's like he's got this document out. It's like like an indictment or a warrant. And it's like he's already put his name at the bottom of it. It's like he's almost like he's taunting God. Here, I'll make up my own warrant. Here, here's my name. I'll sign it. Just put the charges on here, God. Look at what he says, 31, 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. See, Job doesn't see the point. 
His friends think it's because of unrighteousness in him. Surely Job's done something wrong. That's why God has been so harsh. Job thinks, no, I've done nothing wrong. God is just arbitrary. It's random. There's no charge. I'll sign my name. You just tell me what I've done. Almost saying, God, why don't you answer me? And so we're at an impasse. At the end of this impasse, we meet a fourth man. His name is Elihu. And Elihu offers a different view. Before we unpack who Elihu is and what he did and what he said, let me give you a couple descriptions about him to kind of set the context. First, according to chapter 32, verse 6, he's a younger man than the other three. So he's waited all of this time to speak. He sat through 31 chapters of this stuff, okay? So let's be proud of him, okay? Because this was like same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse, right? I mean, it was terrible. It was just over and over and over. And finally he speaks, but chapter 32, verse 1 tells us that he's angry. And I think you would too. You ever been in a conversation where you're listening to people discuss and they can't bring things to a resolution and you don't agree with them and you don't agree with them and you're like, you're all messed up, here's the solution. That's how Elihu felt. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. Notice how many times the word anger is used. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They, they stopped. They're like, it's, it's, it's pointless. He's, he thinks he's righteous. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, the family of Ram, burned with anger. There's the first time. He burned with anger with Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger at Job's friends because they found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. Verse 4, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So this guy is seriously ticked off. He's just... Weary of this debate and this conversation. But there's something else about Elihu you need to know. If you were to read his speeches, all of them, you would pick up a tone, an edge. Because Elihu is arrogant. He's young, he's been patient, he's angry, and he's arrogant. Look at chapter 32, verse 17. Elihu thinks he's got the answer. He thinks he's got it all together. So really, he creates another package, so to speak. But the, the unique thing about Elihu is he's partially right. He's actually on to something. Verse 17, notice his arrogance. He says, I will also answer with my share. I will also declare my opinion. I, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. He's heard all this stuff, and after 31 chapters, he is ready to explode on these guys. He, he has all of these thoughts, all of these concerns, this anger, and he's like ready just to let it loose. And that's what happens. Now, Elihu is far from perfect. His tones are less than gracious. He's even a bit caustic. However, Elihu offers something that is helpful. And you know what? As I thought about this, it just reminded me, you know God even uses arrogant people to tell us the truth sometimes? I really wish he wouldn't do that. I like humble people to say, I don't know about this, Mark, but maybe it is, as opposed to someone who says, listen to me, I'll tell you what you should do. Here's, if I was the pastor, here's what I, here's what I would do, right? 
Or to say, look, if those are my kids, here's what I would do. I don't generally respond really well to those kind of people. I respond better to the, have you ever thought of, or here's a book, or here's a tape, or I don't know, but, you know, just maybe. That, but you know what? God uses arrogant people. You know why? Because we're all arrogant people, that's why. Right? Now, some of us are more obvious than others. Of course, all of you are more obvious than me, right? <laughs> but yet he uses Elihu. Elihu's right. Elihu's on to something. And uh, he's helpful. So the question is, how exactly is Elihu helpful? Or what, what exactly does he say? There are some people who think that Elihu is just another one of Job's miserable counselors, that he adds nothing new, that, that he doesn't help in any way. I don't agree with that. Let me give you just a couple reasons why. The first is that at the end of Job, you'll see in chapter 42, God rebukes Eliphaz, Zophar and Bildad. He, he rebukes them. And he tells, in a classic moment, tells Job, offer sacrifices for these guys. That, that must have been a great moment. Come on, fellas, let me go take care of you. And he goes and offers a sacrifice. But noticeably absent in the list is Elihu. God, God doesn't rebuke Elihu. Secondly, Job is silenced by Elihu. All the other friends, they say things, and Job comes back at them. They, they, they say their ideas, and Job responds. But after Elihu is done, nothing. Job is silenced. Third, we've already heard 31 chapters of argument, and then God gives us six more. And it seems as though if there's going to be six more chapters of argument, that there has to be something in here that is helpful, and not just repetitive of the last 31. And the final thing is that there are some things that Elihu says that are really, really similar to what God says in chapter 38 to 41. I mean, he, there are things, he even says something like, um, answer, stand up and answer yourself like a man, or uh, you have words that, that have darkened the wisdom of knowledge. So you, you know what Elihu is? Elihu is a T. He's, he's setting Job up. And in chapter 38... The big driver's coming out. <laughs> Where God's going to go, Where were you in the foundations of the earth, Job? And by the time God is graciously done with that shot, Job will say, I repent. For now, I used to think that I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you clearly, therefore I repent. So we don't know why he is. Elihu is going to tee up Job. And God graciously brings Elihu into his life in order to help him understand a couple things. Here's what he does. First, he points Job back to the who question. In chapters 36 to 37, very specifically, he reminds Job. In fact, that's what he's angry about. He says, Job, you're justifying yourself instead of justifying God. And the second thing, and this is the most important, he introduces us to loving discipline in righteous suffering. And that's what Job gives us. So the title of the sermon is, Why Do the Righteous Suffer? Answer, Helpful but Hard Discipline. And what Elihu does is, instead of these two categories of, if you sin, then you'll be punished, or all punishment is because of sin, or, no, I haven't sinned, therefore God is just being random, or arbitrary, Elihu says, no, there's a third category, and that's helpful, refining discipline. That there's something else between these two positions 
That's really what's happening here. And I think that what Elihu does is give us a bridge from the existing stalemate between Job and his friends and also material that we'll find at the end of Job and then linking it even over further into the New Testament. So Elihu doesn't know what he's saying, but his words are a little window or a harbinger of what's to come. And we have the benefit of being in the New Testament, able to look back through the lens of the cross, and we can see how right he was. Elihu was on to something. That righteous suffering happens because of helpful discipline. He's preparing Job to meet with God, or rather, God is preparing Job to meet with God, and therefore Elihu enters the scene. So what does he say? What, how does he, what does he do that's helpful? Four things here. And this is what I think we need to take away from Elihu and his contribution. The first is this. He, he sees underlying pride in Job's life. So he identifies the reality of underlying pride. So look at chapter 33 and verse 8. Job has stated that he's innocent. He's done no specific sin. But Elihu, having heard his arguments, having heard what he said about God, doesn't believe that Job is absolutely innocent. Now he's not suggesting that what happened in Job's life was because of some sin. Rather, Elihu is going to suggest that pride in Job's heart was causing him to draw incorrect conclusions about God. So what Elihu suggests is that while Job's suffering wasn't caused by his sin, his suffering certainly gave evidence of how sinful he was. Look at verse 8, chapter 33. He says, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say I am pure without transgression, I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold... He finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. That's what Job was saying. Job, Job was suggesting that, that God was not being fair. He was suggesting that, that God was, was doing things to him that caused him to feel like he was God's enemy. He says, he puts my feet in stocks, he watches all my paths. Verse 12, Behold, in this you are not right, and I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Job's conclusion was, I talk to him, I pray to him, he won't answer me, he's random. Elihu says, you better be careful with that, Job. That... That thing may not have caused your suffering, but that thing that just came out of your mouth, that's not helpful. So he's not saying the same thing that the other three friends said. His point is that Job has started to make statements as if God were his enemy. And we will see at the end of Job in chapter 42 that he does indeed repent, not of some sin that caused the suffering, but rather he repents of the sin that was created in the suffering. Do you know that suffering has an effect that it exposes your self-centeredness? Do you know that suffering has an ability to show you what's on the inside really quickly? It's amazing, isn't it? Okay, this isn't suffering, but let's just use traffic, for instance. 
You're driving down the road, everything's free and clear, and all of a sudden all the cars stop, and you're like, what's going on? How long can you wait? Five minutes? Ten minutes? An hour? Before the elevated temperature of your soul begins ready to burst. And you're like, what's going on? And what's happening? And then you drive by the little accident and you're frustrated beyond measure. That's what it was, right? It's not worth my time. This crash? I mean, a big rollover. That's worth my time. But this little thing, right? So there's these things. It doesn't take very long. I went to the drive-thru to get my kid's food and the the lady handed me the bag and I went to look and then she looked at me like, don't look in the bag. And I was like, (laughs) all right, fine, I won't look in the bag. And so I I put the bag to the side and I get out and shut up, my order's wrong again, right? And all it takes is a missing chicken snack wrap and I'm up to here, right? It just just drives me crazy. That's why fasting is such an important discipline. Let me tell you why. Because fasting is self-chosen suffering. It's where you say, I'm going to give up something. Let's take food. I'm going to give up food. And let me tell you, you give up food for a few hours, a day, you'll start to get hungry. You'll be amazed at how grumpy you can really be. It's amazing that we are fleshly, sinful people, and it doesn't take a whole lot for that stuff to come out. And what Job is being confronted by with Elihu is the fact that underneath his righteousness, which he is righteous, is a undergirding pride that comes out when God doesn't answer him like Job thinks he deserves. Listen, friends, suffering will call you to the mat about what you think you deserve. It's not fun. But it's helpful to know that's part of the divine design. The question is, though, when that comes out, what will you do? Because some people, the pride surfaces, and they're like, See, I wouldn't be like this if you wouldn't make my life so hard. And the reality is, that's not true. It is that you would be worse than this if God weren't so gracious to you. And some people then tip into rage and anger, and they're like, You see, and they get angry at God. And others... Who understand the beauty of the gospel, they see that and they go, oh, so, like, chicken snack wraps get me down, God. You know, they're just, all it takes is that, let alone this. We realize our weakness and we repent in turn. Secondly, he helps us to see that righteous doesn't mean sinless. See, Job is described as, a, as an upright and blameless man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He, yeah, he's a model of righteousness, but he's not perfect. So don't discount the book of Job. Oh, yeah, well, this makes sense, Mark, except Job was like righteous and I'm like not. No, he's like not righteous too. He's just a model, maybe a little ahead of you, but the principles in Job still work for us. Look at chapter 33, verse 15. Elihu sees that God is interested in helping the righteous become refined. Job 33.15. This is the NIV. It's a little clear. It flows a little better. It says, In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warning. Stop. 
What he's saying there is that God reveals himself to people. And in the Old Testament, he did that often through dreams and through visions. And he's saying, Job, God speaks to people and he reveals himself to them. That's what's happening. And notice the purpose. Verse 17. Why does God do that? He does it to turn man from wrongdoing and to keep him from pride. So note this. What Elihu says is there's residue pride, there's residue sinfulness in man, and God speaks to them in order to help keep them from going down the wrong path. Verse 18, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So his point is this, that there are things that God does so that a person can be turned from going down the wrong path and to keep him from pride. And in this verse he says, Job, God sends visions and dreams. He gives special revelation in order to keep people from going down the wrong path. Why do we say this? Why is this important? It's important for you to see that he's saying even the most righteous person, Job, still needs correction. He needs fine-tuning. He needs calibration. And God orchestrates the calibration through special revelation. Okay? So the point is that righteous doesn't equal sin-less. His point to Job is you may be righteous in terms of nothing having caused this suffering, but Job, you're not sinless. He introduces a new thought, the righteous sinner. Now, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad only thought of sinful sinners. There was no righteous sinner. You were either bad or good. And bad people got bad things, good people got good things. And if Job got bad things, he must be bad. And Elihu says, no, 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 no. There's such a thing as a righteous sinner. This is all building. Then notice the third. And here's the most important thing that Elihu helps us with. He introduces us to loving but hard discipline. He introduces us to loving but hard discipline. So his ideas are not fully developed. He's arrogant in how he says it. He doesn't understand the full picture. But make no mistake about it, Elihu is onto something. He gives us a third category, namely that suffering refines the righteous. It takes the righteous sinner and it helps him to be more righteous than what he was before. So rather than saying bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, Elihu says, look, there's a righteousness that's implicit within you, Job, and suffering causes it to be increased. Look at Job 33, verse 15. Or verse 19, rather. Verse 19, we just talked about the, the, the dream, the vision, the special revelation helps to reveal uh, what, man's, what is in a man so he won't go down the wrong path. Well then, Elihu masterfully says there's not only one way that God does that, there's actually two. The first way he does that is through special revelation. The second way that he keeps you from going down the wrong path is suffering. So God not only uses his word, but he also uses hardship. Verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not are seen to stick out. And look at verse 29. Here's the conclusion. So I'm talking about revelation and then suffering. Verse 29, chapter 33, brings it to focus. Behold, God does all these things twice. Three times with a man. Why? To bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. In other words, Elihu sees that God uses his word, but he also uses pain and suffering for our good. He doesn't even know that Romans 8, 28 is in the Bible. He has no idea about James 1. 
He's on to something. He sees the third category, that God's purposes are not to punish Job, but to save him. From whom? From himself. Yes, he didn't do anything to cause the, the, the difficulty, the pain, but what Job doesn't realize is that these trials, it's not that God has abandoned him or God hasn't answered him or that God is capricious or arbitrary or random. No, God is on a plan, Job, and his plan is to save, not to punish. So put all these three things together, and what we see is Elihu helps us by introducing us to the fact that hardship makes the godly man or woman aware of his or her remaining sinfulness and calls them to turn from it. It's that God can use a missing chicken snack wrap in my bag to remind me that i got a lot of work on yet. Or the death of a daughter. Or the disobedience in a kid. Or the loss of a job. Or the adultery of a spouse. God can use those things He's gracious and loving and marvelously sovereign in all that He does. And He has a plan. And that plan is not to punish, but to save. It's, listen to Job 36, 15. Verse 15 and 16. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. He opens their ear by adversity. Do you see it? That doesn't fit with the American dream. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. He says, Job, God opens ears by adversity. You know this. Is it easier to pray when things are going well or when you're desperate and things are hard? Does your spiritual life soar when everything's beautiful, the bank rates on your mortgage are wonderful, you've got great money in your account, the job is cruising, you're on the top of your game, or does your prayer life soar when you're like, okay, I seriously need some help right now? He opens the ears by adversity. Lamentations 3.27 says this, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke suffering in his youth. Some of you are youth, you're young people, and for whatever reason, God has providentially given you a hard path early. And you're looking at the rest of your life, you're just like, no thanks, this is terrible. My life is like really messed up. If, my left, if the next 60 years are like my last 30, I'm toast. I don't want to live this way. The Bible says, no, 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 it's good that a man bear the yoke in his youth. You know why? Because you see life more clearly than people who have been spoon-fed throughout their life. Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. For some of you, the reason you came to Christ was because the bottom fell out of your life, you had nothing left, and you're like, okay, what's the purpose of life? And you came to Jesus, and that affliction was the vehicle by which you met Christ. But when you were in it, it was like, why is this happening? What's the purpose in this? Oh, how patient God is with our silly questions. 
The suffering of the righteous is not a token of God's enmity, but his love. It's not a punishment for sin, but a refinement of righteousness. It is not a preparation for destruction, but a protection from destruction. That's what suffering does. It opens our ears. What suffering does is it it reveals who we are. It refines you by revealing what you're like. Even the most righteous or godly man or woman still has remaining residue of sin. You see, when Christ came, and the Bible tells us He offered a sacrifice for sin, when you receive Christ, you're forgiven of all of your sin, but you still have this flesh thing that's still hanging around. Remember intentional atrophy? This flesh that's there, and you've got to just let that thing shrivel up and die, but it won't actually die, it just will be like it's almost as dead. Well, that remaining sinfulness is always there. And the beauty of suffering is that it surfaces, it surfaces it and it shows us that it's there, calling us to repent of it. It's like a two-liter bottle of pop. You walk by the aisle on Mars and you're like, look, all these bottles of pop. You can choose any one you want. So I chose a 7-Up. And, and I remember as a kid, for the first time learning that although these bottles of pop look very innocent and inactive, It doesn't take a whole lot to make them very active and, frankly, a bit fun, right? (laughs) In fact, your life is a bit like a a two-liter pop. And you're just minding your own business, and all of a sudden God says, you know what, we're going to shake things up a little bit. And before you know it, you're like, whoa, look at that. There's like fizz in there. And God says, wow, shake it up a little bit, see what happens. And before you know it, your mouth starts to open, and you're like, you know what, I think... Oh, oh, and you're like, I didn't realize there was that much fizz in there, right? And some of you, all it takes is a little bump, and the fizz starts coming. The question is, what are you going to do with a life full of fizz? What do you do with a heart that's that's full of pride and self-sufficiency? And when suffering comes, it, it, it reminds us that you can look really righteous, you can look really pure, and all it takes is a little bump, and the fizz just starts happening. Something doesn't go according to your plan. Your marriage isn't exactly the way that you wanted it. Your family isn't exactly how you designed it. Your job and your career is not going the path as you designed it. And before you know it, the buck comes and the fizz starts coming. The question is, when that happens, what do you do? What you should do is get on your knees and say, God, forgive me, there's so much junk inside of my soul. All it takes is a little bump in my marriage or a little bump at work. And all this crud just comes flowing out of my heart. And the most righteous man or woman still has a residue, an implicit fizz of sinfulness resonant within them and suffering bumps and it shows us that it's really there. And it calls us to get on our knees and say, I need more of you. I need more of you. I need more. Help, please. And the beauty of I choosing to bless is realizing that that realization that you need more help is not a bad thing. It is a gloriously good thing. It is that you would cling to Christ in new ways and grab a hold of Him and say, You are more valuable than an easy life. I choose to bless you. I will not curse. Suffering refines by revealing It has a sanctifying way of showing us what is lying on the inside of us. It shows us the reality of who we are. 
And the question is, when that becomes evident, what will you do? Some of you are angry today because you don't like the fact that God has revealed through suffering that there is a residue of unrighteousness still within you. And instead of being angry at the instrument, it's time to see it as a loving, gracious, beautiful thing that God does. We're into the terrible twos with our two-year-old. They're called terrible because they are. And now we have female terrible twos. They're different. <laughs> they look like this. They're pouty. They're walking a corner. They're, they're different. They're more confusing. They're harder. And they're equally as wicked. The other, day, Santa, the other day, Santa put her hand to go touch something on the stove. She loves to help in the kitchen, wants to be like mom. And I said, no, honey, you can't touch that. And she touched it, and I spanked her hand. I spanked her hand so much more lightly than I did with the boys. I said, I can't hit that little hand as hard. And I hit it, and she goes, that hurts, Daddy. And I wanted to say, it's supposed to hurt, right? Goes, that hurts, Daddy. She goes, touch again. I spanked it. That hurts, Daddy. And she doesn't understand that I am... I'm disciplining her. Yes, it hurts. But what she would do would hurt her far more. Here's the thing, friends. What is inside of you is so dangerous, so wicked, so prone to destruction that Christ took the punishment for your sin, but the remaining effects of that resident sinfulness is there, and it can cause great disaster to your soul. And so when God gives you a slap on the wrist, instead of saying, that hurts, instead you should say, thank you, because that is dangerous inside. The final thing that Elihu does is he links loving discipline to a gracious mediator. There is a fascinating passage in Job 32 or 33. All of you need to go there. Everyone has to, if you have a Bible, you must be open or I will chuck the two liter at you, okay? So, Job 33, 23. I'm reading along, studying this passage, and all of a sudden I come to this text and I can't even believe what's there. I'm looking at it and I just go, <laughs> I can't believe what Elihu has no idea what he's talking about. You know what he's going to talk about because you understand the New Testament. Listen. He says to Job, If there be for him, meaning Job, an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand to declare to man what is right for him. So he imagines that in order for this loving, disciplined thing to work, there has to be some heavenly mediator. And he is merciful to them, verse 24, and he says, so the mediator says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. And let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then... Man prays to God and he accepts him and sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men. So the man then says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Do you see it? Do you see it? Elijah doesn't know what he's talking about. But he's spot on. 
He sees a mediator, somebody to go between God and himself. He sees somebody who will tell people what is right, somebody who will deliver people from the pit, somebody who will find a ransom, who will find a ransom so that mediation can be possible, somebody who will make Job and him acceptable to God, somebody whose actions will be so marvelous, so merciful, that people will say, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. That's grace, by the way. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Who's he talking about? Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the mediator. Second, 1 Timothy 2.5 He's full of the revelation of the Father. John 1.14 He's the one who delivered people from the pit. Jesus was the one who ransomed people back to God. Jesus is the one who makes people acceptable to God. And the result is that the punishment for my sin is poured out on Christ. Elihu sees a mediator. He just has no idea how beautiful that mediator will really be. This book, friends, is pointing to Christ. He's the ultimate righteous sufferer. He's the one who bore the full penalty for sin so that those who receive him could be forgiven of their sins. So this category that Job's friends create of of somebody who's done what's wrong and then they're going to be punished because of what was wrong, that is remedied in the cross. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure out what the Bible means and what the cross is all about, it essentially is this. That God has to punish every single sin. And the way that He did that was by pouring out all the punishment for those who would believe in Jesus. They poured out His judgment on Christ. Such that Job's friends are categorically wrong. Because every sin committed by those who believe is covered under the blood of Christ. So there is no double jeopardy. So you look at this thing through a New Testament lens. Looking back on it. And you can see the beauty that Christ is imaged clearly and powerfully in the book of Job. That it is Christ who is the one who is spoken about, although Elihu calls him an angel. He's the one who bears all punishment for sin. He's the one that creates all righteousness. And the problem is that Job does not see the full picture. He's a good man, but he's not sinless. And what God does is He punishes sin, but He did so fully on Christ. And what Elihu annoyingly does is open the door wide open for the gospel. So let me be clear. You will not understand suffering until you see suffering through the lens of Jesus. Because here's what happens. Jesus changes everything. For the person who understands the beauty of the gospel who understands that all of my sins were covered in the, in, in the work of Christ, now that work of Jesus and becoming like Him becomes the most wonderful treasure in all the world. It's the pearl of great price, the thing that's worth selling everything for and getting after. It means that my treasure is in Him, not on the earth. It's not in health or wealth or marriage or family or kids. It's not any of that. My treasure is ultimately Christ. That's the treasure. And nobody can take that away from me. The enemy can't touch it. It's absolutely preserved and protected. And the essence of my life and hope is by living in that reality and hoping in that gift, not just simply treasuring life on earth. And that's what suffering does. It says, what do you love? This stuff or Him? This stuff or Him? And that's why it's so beautiful for the soul, but so hard emotionally, because it pulls us from the effects of the earth, and it says, no, 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 I don't love this. I love Him. I love Him. I love Him. It means that Paul says in Romans 8, 
We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Meaning that there's this huge plan that God has been working out since the foundation of the earth in order to make you like His Son. It involved your receiving Christ, but it also involves the job loss and the difficulties in your marriage. And all of these things are making you like Christ. And the issue is, do you love that? Or would you rather just have a nice marriage? James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Consider it all joy? How? Because what is gained is far more beautiful than what you lost. Third, Hebrews 12, our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. So His divine end in what He's trying to accomplish is to make you more like His Son. Again, the question is not, why is this happening? The question is, can I trust the hand of Him who's doing it and that He knows that it's for my good? And I know this is hard. I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying there's all sorts of joy and Beautiful grace attached to this concept and this verse. And last one. 2 Corinthians 1.8. Look what Paul says. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. They thought that this is the end. It's so hard that God is surely going to just take us out. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Some of you, that needs to be underlined right now in your Bible. Because that's the whole reason of what is happening in your life. It is so that you will not rely on yourself, but on God. So suffering does not make any sense unless you know that's who is behind it, and that's what His plan is. The who question is not just God, it's Jesus. So why do the righteous suffer? Suffering comes as individually designed expert therapy by the loving hand of our great physician. Its aim is not that our faith might be... Its aim is that our faith might be refined... Our holiness might be enlarged, our soul might be saved, and our God might be glorified. The question is, do you care about that, or do you just want your job back? Nothing wrong with a job. Nothing wrong with kids, unless they become more important than that. The righteous, why do they suffer? They suffer to make them more like Christ. Listen. He is no fool or much enticed who loses everything but Christ. And it won't be long until the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. He is no fool or much enticed who loses everything but Christ. It will not be long until that rod becomes the tender kiss of God.
But Lord, make it so that we believe that the rod can become the tender kiss of God. Lord, I pray that even right now you would open the eyes of some who would need to see that everything about the hardships in their life in the past has been about drawing them to your throne this very moment. And I pray that right now they would say, Jesus, I relent, I repent of my sins. I come and choose to trust you as my Savior. Lord, birth people in your kingdom now. Help them see that suffering doesn't make any sense without the cross. And then, Father, for those who claim you as Savior and Lord, who have been under the rod for a long time, help them to see it as this tender kiss. And when they can't understand why, oh God, let them choose to bless and bank their lives on who? And while we're just in these final moments here, whether here in Columbus or in worship too, There'll be some people up here at the front. There'll be some folks over in our worship two venue at the front. If you need prayer today, if you're just carrying an enormous burden, or if you're just like, you know what, I, I'd rather have my marriage than Christ. And I don't know how to do that. And why don't you have someone just pray for you? They'll be up here at the front. There's nothing better than having someone just say, God, help my brother or sister. And nothing worse being hurting in a big room full of people. It's the loneliest place in the world. And we don't want you to leave without having somebody minister to you. But you have to say first, I need help. That's the first moment when you say, I got fizz. It's called pride. And I need to break it by saying, I need help. And these folks will be here just to pray with you. And so, Father, I ask now that you would glorify your name as we choose to treasure you, Christ, above all things. Thank you that all things are of you and through you and to you. To your name be glory both now and forevermore. Amen.